This morning we come to the end of chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. So we're about a third of the way through, um, maybe a little more than a third. Beginning in verse 43. You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So this is the most blatant distortion of God's law by the religious leaders so far. Love your enemy was a law that you can find in Leviticus 19. Hate your enemy, not a law. Okay, the religious leaders justified this extra statement. This was a common slogan at the time. And they justified it by narrowly defining the word neighbor as only a fellow Jew. That's who they thought of as their neighbors. Okay, so in other words, they chose to conveniently interpret the law in this way. I must love only my neighbor or I must love only my neighbor or as they understood it, my Jewish neighbor. The religious leaders would also defend this interpretation using the many obvious examples of God punishing his enemies in the Old Testament. And they would say, well, surely God doesn't want us to love his enemies. You see the way he treated his enemies. And Jesus objects to this narrow interpretation. Verse 44. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. In other words, Jesus says, you prove yourself to be an enemy of God and not a son of God by failing to love your enemies. And in saying it this way, what Jesus is doing is he is widening the definition of neighbor. You see, the command to love one's neighbor is found in Leviticus 19. And twice in that chapter, God commands his people to show kindness specifically to foreigners who are living among them. In verse 10 of Leviticus 19, God tells his people to leave some of the harvest for foreigners to gather for themselves. In verse 34, he says this. He says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In other words, God says, I want you to remember who you were and who you are now. It's very clear. He's not giving room to these religious leaders who say, only the Jews are my neighbors, right? Because God said, 
even the native among you, I want you to treat as, um, or I want you to treat the stranger even as the native among you, right? So this command to love our enemies is rooted in the faithfulness of God specifically to people who don't deserve his love. That's where he anchors this command. And so what he's saying is, is that because I've been faithful to people who don't deserve it, like you, people like you, so also I want you to do the same, right? And so the question then is, who are we to decide who is our neighbor and who is our enemy? Jesus actually answers a similar question in Luke chapter 10. This is a familiar story. He says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Which is really, it's actually a really good answer. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly, do this, and you will live. But the man, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In other words, Jesus who do I have to love? And who can I ignore? Who can I choose not to love? Verse 30, Jesus replied, A man goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, two days wages, gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell Among the robbers, the man said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And that's the story. Well, several years ago, um, some of you may remember, I actually spent four Sundays unpacking this one story and the rich meaning that that it holds. And it really still wasn't enough because there's so much here. And I only have like a minute, so I can't go into it all. But in just a few sentences, Jesus teaches us about generosity. He teaches us about compassion. He teaches us about mercy. 
and he teaches us about impartiality. Okay? There's a lot going on here. And he shows us, of course, what it looks like to be a good neighbor. That's the, the point of the story. But the punchline of the story is the unlikely hero. You see, the good neighbor in the story is someone that the lawyer would have quickly identified as his enemy. Because if you know this, Jews and Samaritans absolutely hated each other. It it ran both ways. They did not get along. And so Jesus uses this story to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And the answer is literally anyone. (laughs) Literally anyone in need. Whoever needs you to be a neighbor, that's who your neighbor is. And so he's teaching that disciples of Jesus must not ignore the needs of people we would rather avoid. And as you keep reading in Matthew 5, Jesus defends this view even further. He says this, For He, that is your Father in heaven, makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Okay? What Jesus is describing is something that theologians call common grace. Okay? So there's saving grace, which is what um, sets believers apart from unbelievers. But then Jesus describes something here that we would call common grace. Okay? So there's a, there is a coming judgment. So one day Jesus will return and He will judge the earth. And God will separate the sheep from the goats, right? You're familiar with this idea. There will be a punishment of the guilty and there will be a salvation, a final you know, uh, rejoicing of those whose faith is in Christ. But what Jesus is saying is that in the meantime, until that happens, God is going to continue and has always continued to provide sunshine and rain for everyone without partiality. So what Jesus is saying is that God's friends and His enemies all receive common blessing. Okay? We all have air in our lungs. We all have blood pumping in our veins until He takes us you know, from this world. You know, you have received common grace. Okay? God's not dealing with you the way He probably should deal with you is what Jesus is saying. He's giving to all certain blessings. And what Jesus is saying is that this is the standard of our doing good to others. Is that common grace? Now look at verse 46. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And what's Jesus saying? He's saying that love is not a unique virtue to Christians. Okay? Not only Christians experience love. All humans experience love because we were made in God's image and God is a loving God. 
And I love, he says, even tax collectors can love people. And that doesn't mean a whole lot to us unless you really hate the IRS, and some of you may. But um, I have to wonder if Jesus said this with a wink to Matthew, okay? Because Matthew's recording these words. He's writing down this sermon. And Matthew was a tax collector. So it's almost like Jesus is like, do, do not even the tax collectors do the same, Matthew? Right? And of course, tax collectors were hated by the Jews because they worked for the Romans and most of them were skimming money, right? And the Romans didn't care. As long as they got their money, they didn't care if you took a little bit extra off the top. And everybody knew this. So they hated tax collectors. And Jesus is saying, even those people love their friends, whatever friends they have, which is probably not many, Jesus is saying, even the worst among us love our friends. Even the pagans love their friends. And Jesus is saying, that's not, that's not enough. That's not what I'm calling you to, right? We want to give ourselves a pat on the back for doing something that all decent human beings do. But love of enemies, that is a uniquely Christian virtue. And then the chapter ends with this, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm just going to let that hang in the air for just a second, okay? Jesus says, you... Therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Does that feel a bit heavy? It should. Okay? Now, there are some people that believe that what Jesus is saying here is he, he's cutting against the entire grain of the Bible by suggesting that for us as Christians that literal perfection is possible in this life. And there are those that teach that. Okay, There are some churches, some denominations, you know, some cults that teach that you, know, you can be perfect in this life. And it, that's not possible. Somebody's going on record as saying that. Nobody in this room, myself included, we are not perfect. Okay, We do not teach in this church that perfection is possible in this life. And I'm going to argue that that's not Jesus' purpose. Okay, um, And remember, this is the same chapter where Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I don't know any one-handed Christians that intentionally cut their hands off. Okay, so... Um, what do I think Jesus is saying here? Well, remember this sermon is about kingdom life. He's, he's talking about what does it look like to be a follower, um, to be a part of his kingdom. And remember that from the very first week when we talked about the Beatitudes, the most important characteristic of a Christian is a recognition of our constant need. 
it begins, the Christian life begins and continues to grow by repentance and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So let's put this in context, okay? Now Jesus started this section that we're finishing today, this section on the law and how he views the law. And he started it by saying that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the religious leaders. And he illustrates that in in several ways. And what he is slowly doing is he is slowly raising the bar of that standard of what it means to be righteous. I want you to think of it like um, adding weight to a workout. So if you've ever lifted weights of any kind, okay, and let's say somebody just comes to the bar and they just start adding weight, okay, and they keep adding weight and they keep adding weight until you literally can't lift it anymore, okay? Have you ever been angry with someone, Jesus says, right? Have you ever experienced lust? Have you ever broken a promise? Have you ever endured an insult without feeling the need to retaliate, to defend yourself? Have, have, you, ever, um, have you ever loved your enemy? Are you perfect? And you see what Jesus is doing, right? You have to be perfect. can't, Jesus. I can't. I can't do it. Exactly. So what I want us to do instead is I want us to evaluate our lives together and I want us to be honest with ourselves because I think that's what Jesus is actually trying to get us to do. And we could talk about this if you think I'm interpreting it wrongly, but the people in our lives who get our love tend to be the people that we know, the people that we trust, the people that we like, right? We tend to reserve our love Now, truth be told, some of the people that we supposedly love get the worst of us. Okay, I'll be the first to admit that. But but in general, we don't even really have relationships with people that we don't like. Right? We don't tend to have relationships with people that we don't trust. And so the only people that we really tend to think of even loving at all are the people that we know, the people that we trust, the people that we like. This is especially true in the American South. And we know it. Okay? We want to know where you're from and who you know. Okay? So if I meet you in the South and I don't know you from Adam, I want to know where you're from and who you know. We do this, right? Okay? And what are we really trying to decide? We may not know anything about their character. We may not know anything about what they've done or haven't done. 
but I know your daddy. I know where that small town is, right? And so it's just automatic. I trust you, okay? Before I've even known anything about you. It's not easy. We understand this, right? It's not easy for someone to move here from somewhere else and find real community. If we're going to be honest. This is something that's true even in our churches and maybe especially in our churches. Every church thinks that it's friendly. Okay, I, I, maybe there's some really, really honest, but I mean, most churches that I'm familiar with, you know, if you ask the average member, are you a friendly church? They're going to say, of course, we're a friendly church, right? But very often, visitors to those churches will describe the same church as cold and unwelcoming. And why would they say that? Because the members are friendly with other members and they tend to ignore the visitors. Or they'll ask you 15 times in a row, are you new here? Right? Who would Jesus move towards in a crowd of people? Who did He move towards, right? I mean, he would move towards the ones who are sitting alone, the ones who are on the margins, the ones who don't have people. This is why when I describe Christ fellowship, I say this not just for the visitors, I say it as a reminder to the members. Okay? I like to say we're a family, but I don't stop there. Because if that's all I said, then most people on the outside are only going to hear... They're a family, and I'm not a part of it. Right? And so I usually say instead, we're a family, but we're always adopting. And the reason I say it like that is because I'm saying, you might not yet be a part of this family, but you can be, and we want you to be. And I'm saying that not just for the visitors, but for the rest of us to be like, oh yeah, I have a part to play in that, right? So if we, if we want you to be a part of this family, then we have to work together as a church to help new people see that and believe it. Okay, so there's a, a little side note. And yet, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that, that that whole discussion, that is only scratching the surface of what Jesus is actually telling us here. It is so much deeper than that, okay? These words can be applied to all the reasons that human beings naturally divide themselves into groups of friends and enemies because of our sin. We do it because of racism, right? Or ethnocentrism. It may not be that I hate somebody else because they're different from me. It may just be that I really just love my people. Right? Both of those things are, can be rooted in sin, right? Or are. We divide based on income or class. We divide up based on age or affinity or politics, right? There's, there's really no end to the ways in which human beings have figured out how to create enemies. <laughs> 
We're really, really good at it. But to get to the heart of what I think Jesus is calling us to do, what I want to ask you to do is to try to do this with me, okay? I want you to think of an enemy. I want you to think of someone you just really can't stand. Someone that you wouldn't be comfortable in the same room with. And some of you are like thinking right now, I don't have any enemies. I get along with everybody. Okay? Well, if you're having a hard time thinking of a specific person, I bet you can think of a category of people. Okay? So it might be a liberal or a conservative. All right? It might be a gay or trans person. It might be someone from your past that hurt you specifically. Okay? I don't I'm just throwing out some possible cat, but think of somebody that you just would have a hard time even interacting with. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to imagine standing shoulder to shoulder with that person. And you're standing before the throne of God and your arm is around them and you're talking to God and you're asking for God to bless that person. You have that mental picture? Because that's what Jesus is saying. Listen to this quote by John Stott. Jesus seems to have prayed for His tormentors actually while the iron spikes were being driven through His hands and feet. Indeed, the imperfect tense of the verb suggests that He kept praying, kept repeating His entreaty, His prayer, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing while they were doing it. Jesus says, or sorry, not Jesus. John Stott says, big, big error there on my part. Um, He says this, if the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain? What pride, what prejudice or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? And if I'm honest, it might be too difficult for me. To pray for my worst enemy. And this is where, I think, this is where we can begin to see what it might might have looked like, what it must have looked like for God to love me. Because my sin was equally the cause of Christ's torture. I was an enemy of God. And this is the nature of God's love. To love the otherwise unlovable. It is the only love that ultimately conquers this world. 
I am not perfect. You are not perfect, but a perfect love and a perfect righteousness is available to you by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we come to You humbled by the picture of Your love for people who don't deserve it, including us. We come to You humbled that You would speak out a prayer of blessing, of forgiveness on the very people who put You in the place where You would both suffer and experience the wrath of God for sin. And if we're honest, our sin was part of that. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that even as you humble us, that you would help us to trust you alone for the forgiveness that we need. And, Lord, I pray that you would move us towards others, even the people that we have the hardest time loving. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that We're no different, really, from one another as human beings apart from Christ. And that we would seek not just our own salvation, but the salvation of our neighbors. We would love and serve them. For the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Stand together and sing.